Good morning, Journey. You know, I told our team, I said, I want that to be my walkout song for like every sermon I preach from now on. That's the first time I've come out to that. And I I spiked my Bible at 9 a.m. And some Amish guy got offended and left. So I won't do that at this service. But I considered it. Um, Man, I'm so glad to be back from a Sunday off from spring break. We are in the midst of a series at our church. If you're new to our church or maybe just jumping into this series um, called Border War. And we're talking about the spiritual battles that people face and how to prepare to face spiritual battles and how to prepare to win spiritual battles because we're in a study of the book of Acts that's going to last all year long. We started the first Sunday of January. We'll finish in December studying the book of Acts so that we can be inspired and informed of how the church is supposed to work. And here's what we began to understand two weeks ago. I said this on your sermon notes. If you haven't grabbed those already, reach inside and grab those out of your bulletin so you can follow along. But as we go through the book of Acts and we reach Acts chapter 5, within the proper context of the book of Acts, meaning reading it the way it was written, we learn that seasons of spiritual blessing are often followed by seasons of spiritual warfare. Which means this, if you count yourself blessed today, if you're living in a season... That And you just really feel like God has been pouring out his blessing on you. According to what we learn in scripture, sometimes those seasons are followed by seasons of spiritual warfare. Our church is definitely living in a season of spiritual blessing. We just came through eight weeks of a building project. We had a goal that our church would pledge a million dollars. They pledged a million and a half. We had a goal that our church would give $350,000. They gave nearly $700,000. I mean, the blessing of God is being dumped on our church in, in so much capacity that we can hardly contain it. Yet we know seasons of spiritual blessing are often followed by seasons of spiritual warfare. Dr. John MacArthur, who's one of the greatest New Testament scholars alive, says this about this thought of spiritual warfare that all of us need to be aware of. He said, Jesus' ministry began in a great battle with Satan that lasted 40 days. As Jesus' ministry ended, Satan besieged him again in the Garden of Gethsemane with such force that he sweat great drops of blood. Among many other instructive truths, those two accounts teach us that the battle may not become easier... As we grow in obedience to God, if anything, Satan will intensify his efforts against those who continue to effectively serve the Lord. As believers grow stronger, so will Satan's attacks. I know the people in our church, many of them personally. And I know many of the people in our church are stronger spiritually today than they were three years ago, two years ago, one year ago, even at the beginning of this year. Which means the stronger we get spiritually, the more susceptible we become to spiritual attack. I know our church is stronger today than it was a year ago today. Which means our church is in a position to come under spiritual attack. And the only way to avoid spiritual battles, the only way not to have any spiritual warfare on you is to decide you're going to quit moving forward spiritually. If you decide that you don't want to grow anymore, if you decide to just kind of go back on your faith, if you decide you don't want to live for Jesus, you don't love Jesus, if you stop spiritually, Satan will stop spiritually. But as long as you're moving forward, as long as we're moving forward, there's going to be some spiritual opposition according to Scripture. And guess what? I don't know about you, but I am not planning to stop moving forward spiritually, which means you and I can't avoid spiritual warfare if we're moving forward. But we can learn to endure it, and we can learn to overcome it. And today, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in the probably the best New Testament passage on spiritual warfare that there is in Ephesians chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, or if you're firing up your phone or your tablet, whatever you do to follow along, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers have some that, they, that you can use. You'll want to have this passage in your hand today if you don't have a Bible. Um, if, if they give you this Bible to use today and you don't have one at home, just write your name in it and keep it. We've given away more than 700 Bibles since our church began just like this. But in Ephesians chapter 6, we see this incredible blueprint of how we protect ourselves from the devil, how we protect ourselves from spiritual warfare. But before I do that, before I get to that, let me talk to you about the book of Ephesians. Because this truth within the book of Ephesians, I think when we understand why the book of Ephesians was written, we would say, I want that in my life. And part of having this in your life is understanding spiritual 
warfare. So the book of Ephesians, according to Ephesians 1, about 12 through 19, we see kind of the main idea of the whole book, was written to a church that had a great reputation for their faith and for their love of people. The Apostle Paul wrote a a letter to this church. The church was in Ephesus. That's the name of the town. That's why the book is called Ephesians. These people were known as Ephesians, the people of Ephesus. And he said, hey, whenever people talk about your church, they talk about how much you love God and how much you love people. I pray that one day people talk about me this way. I pray that when people meet me, they think, man, that guy really loves God and he really loves people. I pray that people talk about our church that way. When someone says, oh, that, that Journey Church International, that church that meets at that middle school, that church that's building a building off the highway. I know a few people from there. Man, they really love God and they really love people. So this book was written to a great church, but it was written number two so this church could know God better. Paul said, I'm writing you this letter because I want you to know God more. He said, I want you to know more about the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is what can be known about God from Scripture. He said, I want to unlock some of the secrets of the Bible for you so that through the wisdom that God has passed on, you can know God more. But he said, I also want you to know more about the revelation of God. The revelation of God is what can be experienced of God or what God reveals to you. So Paul said, we can do a book study and we can unlock some secrets of the Bible. And that's a good idea. But Paul said, if I can teach you how to see God in your life, if I can teach you how to experience God and understand when God is revealing himself to you, he said, that's going to be huge. And he said in number three, in Ephesians 1.18, he said, I'm writing this letter so that the eyes of your heart can be opened. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, but I, I know, I think, I'm pretty sure, um, that a heart does not have eyes. However... Paul clearly here is talking about some spiritual awakening. Paul is saying that there are some things that have not yet been revealed to your soul, that if your soul becomes aware of these things, it's going to bring you closer to God. It's in the context of this letter that we learn about spiritual warfare. Paul's saying if your soul can get exposed to how to protect yourself against spiritual warfare, you're going to be closer to God. And then he said, number four, that the letter of Ephesians was written so that this church would be alive in Christ. He said, y'all once were dead spiritually, but now you've become alive and I want you to become more alive. I don't know about you, but I read through these first four things and I think, man, that's, that's my desire. That's not my reality, but it's my desire. I don't love God the way I should. I don't love people the way I should, but I want to do better. I don't know all that I can know about scripture and I've not experienced everything I can experience spiritually, but I I want more of that. I want the eyes of my heart to be open more so I can know Jesus better. And I want to be alive in Christ. This isn't my reality, but it is my desire. So this book is a big time book for Christians who want to be closer to Jesus. And in chapter five and six, Paul gets in some real simplistic relationship stuff. In Ephesians chapter 5, he begins to talk about husbands and wives. Say, if you want to have a good marriage. If you're a Christian, you want to have a good marriage. Husbands, treat your wives this way. Wives, treat your husbands this way. Hey, if you're a Christian and you you want to do well in parenting, moms and dads, treat your kids this way. Kids, treat your parents that way. Just real practical stuff that anyone would lean into. Hey, if you want to be a good boss, if you own a business, you want to treat your employees well. Treat your employees like this. If you're an employee, you work for a guy who's a jerk. Here's, here's, because you're a Christian, here's how you should treat him. Paul actually says that. If you have people you work with, here's, as a Christian, how you should get along. A lot of relationship advice, but Paul ends with, he actually uses the word finally. He said the last relationship you need to be aware of is the relationship as a Christian that you have to the devil. Because if you can figure that one out, you can grow strong spiritually. And he teaches us how to be protected from spiritual warfare. Now, I want to show you three things today, and I'm actually going to, I I normally read through the entire text, and then I come back and teach a little bit. I'm going to teach, read, teach, read, so I'm going to change it up a little bit today. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that Paul shows us is that spiritually, there's a protected position spiritually. Say, what does that mean? Paul Paul's going to reveal to us that spiritual warfare is real, but that God wants us to be protected from that. He said, there's a position spiritually that God wants you to have in this spiritual battle. And here's the protected position that Paul says we should strive for spiritually. Ephesians 6, 10 and 11, he says, finally, you should circle the word finally. This is just his last bit of relationship advice. If you're married, you have a relationship with a spouse. If you're a parent, you have a relationship with your kids. 
If you work, you have a relationship with someone at your work. If you're a Christian, sadly, we have a relationship with the devil in spiritual warfare. Paul said you should know about all of those. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, the protected position that Paul wants us to have is simple. And here it is. Be strong spiritually. Paul says every Christian should strive to live in the position of being strong spiritually. Why? Because God is strong. And if we're connected to God and God is strong, then we should be strong. So the protected position is simple. Be strong because God is strong. But it's also schematic. It's a simple statement, but the process becomes a strategy. Paul's going to lay out for us that we have to have a strategic plan to combat the devil's strategy. Or as our former president said, it's strategery. It's kind of, you know, kind of all the, the same thing. We, we kind of know whether we're speaking English or Texan. We, we know what that means. This word schemes. The apostle Paul says, look at the end of verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. This word screen, schemes is, is the Greek word. Paul originally wrote this book in Greek. It's methodia. It's the word that we get our English word methods from, but it's a word found most commonly in Greek literature in zoology or in literature talking about animals. This word methodia, this word schemes, this this thing that the devil does was most often used to refer to the methods that an animal would use to stalk, trap, hunt, pounce on, kill, and eat their prey. Paul said the devil, Peter last week, if you were here when Jimmy preached, Peter said the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He just came right out and said it. Paul kind of says it within the word. He said Satan has a scheme for your life. He has a method for your life to stalk you, to hunt you, to trap you, to get you stuck, to destroy you, and to devour you. So Paul said, you're protected. God wants you to stand strong. However, you're going to have to learn how to do that in the midst of a really intense fight. So we've said the last two weeks of journey that, that Satan tries to really attack your thoughts and your feelings. We said that scripture says that Satan tries to get in your head and you've got to process your thoughts against scripture's truth. Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful among all things. You can't always trust your feelings because Satan works kind of in the realm of your heart and in your head. And then Jimmy last week said that Satan works in extreme isolation. Who has Satan isolated you from or that Satan works in bondage? What's that habit or that memory, that addiction, that abusive person that you're still in bondage to? You see, Satan wants to get in your head. And for some of you, he's in your head today. You're, you're trying to figure out how to sort through some things spiritually because the devil's in your head. For some of you, Satan's in your heart. And you're having feelings that you, you, can't even, you can't even really put your finger on, but you just, whether it's a relationship or work or hope for the future, you, you, you're not really safe with your feelings right now. Some of you have been isolated in relationships. You think the whole world's against you. Some of you are still in bondage. What do we do? We, we said two weeks ago, stop, drop, and roll. We stop. We process these thoughts through the lens of Scripture, spiritual warfare. We drop. We pray. We ask God to help us through this, and then we roll. We just, we just keep moving forward, even when we don't understand things. So we know there's a protected position, but number two, there's a protection problem. God wants us to be strong. God wants us to stand strong, but there's a problem. The devil's stalking us. He's hunting us. He wants to trap us. He wants to get us stuck. He wants to destroy us. And here's what Paul says in verse 12. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That means against people, against humanity. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let me say something about verse 12. Verse 12 doesn't just sound a little dark. It is a little dark. Actually, it's a lot dark. And for you and I to deny the reality of evil, 
For you and I to deny the problem of evil in our world is to deny the entire narrative of Scripture. So we can either lean into this series and say, man, I really need to learn how to deal with spiritual attack in my own life. Or we can do what you heard Jimmy say last week. One out of every four church-going Christians does not believe the devil's real. We can check out of this series and say, this is crazy, man. I'm not under spiritual attack. But we can't really deny the concept and the problem of evil, at least not globally. I was telling our senior high students, I lead a senior high Bible study on Sunday nights. If you're in senior high and you don't come yet, you should. We have a good time every Sunday. We'll hang out tonight from 6 to 7.30 or so. But I was talking to them about being confronted with this reality of evil a few weeks ago. Because evil is an interesting subject. Um, Evil is a subject that you're taught in seminary to argue for in the case of trying to prove that there's a morally good God. Uh, you're taught in seminary, and you even do mock debates of using evil, relying on the concept of evil to prove that there's a God. Kind of like this. I read it this way in a book one time. When talking to an atheist, even most atheists believe that there are some things that are just always wrong. And an author used in a book this, this concept of 9-11. And he said in talking to one of his atheist friends about what happened on September 11th, he asked that friends, well, why was that wrong? He said, well, it just is. Well, why is it wrong? Well, it just is. Well, why is it wrong? Well, it's always wrong to kill innocent people. And he says, says who? Says who? Where does that fiber of moral good come from? Is it possible that God planted a standard of what is right in your heart so that some things you always just know are wrong? So evil's a great apologetic for good. However, evil is one of the main things that agnostics and atheists use to say there can't be a God. I mean, if all this evil exists, how could there be a good, loving, all-powerful God if all this evil exists? So, I mean, the world's foremost apologist and atheist debate this subject of evil all the time. I tried to do this on a sidewalk in Los Angeles about a decade ago. I, I took about 15 students from our student ministry years ago to serve on Skid Row in Los Angeles. If you're not familiar with Skid Row, about three weeks ago, a homeless man was shot on Skid Row because he raced back into his tent. The cops thought he was getting a weapon and they unloaded on him and shot it. It's the largest homeless population in America. It's drug infested. It's violent. The city of LA has just given a couple blocks to, they call it Boxtown. It's cardboard boxes. It's tents. It's a pretty dangerous place, but it's a great ministry place. Scotty and I have been there almost, probably a dozen times between us with students. And what you do when you, we, we connect with this ministry called the Dream Center, and the Dream Center basically tries to get these homeless folks to come off the street, they house them, they feed them, they try to get them detoxed, uh, they try to teach them a skill, and they try to send them back out into the world. So teenagers and youth groups will go there, and our job is to start on one end of Skid Row and walk three or four blocks down Skid Row. You're not allowed to wear sandals or so many drugs, uh, drug needles and stuff on the street. You're not allowed to really engage anyone because of all the disease there, but you take packs of plain M&M's, you know, you never take peanut M&M's because most of them, because of the drugs, they, they rotted their teeth, so they want plain M&M's. And you just start on one end of Skid Row and you walk to the other, handing out M&M's and inviting these homeless people, usually tanked up on drugs, that any time the big white bus comes downtown, you can get on the bus, you can go back in for 30 days. You can have three warm meals a day. You can have a place to sleep. They'll work to get you detox. They just want to help you. And this this is what they do. They just try to get people off the street and try to get them rehabilitated. And you go downtown and, you know, they see the buses coming and we, you know, we've had it whereas we're driving down. I mean, just people high out of their mind will bang on the side of the bus. They'll throw stuff at the bus. It's your first time or two down there. It's a little scary. And one of our first times down there, we kind of had to move locations because someone was beating on the bus and they went to drop us off at another place. And I was the first one off with like 12 of our students behind me. And like, as they opened the door, like this gangbanger, like, like stood at the door of the bus and would not let me step off the bus. He came up and he's like, you need to get back on that bus and go back where you came from. And I said, all right. And I told the driver, I said, he said, we need to, he said, we need to go back. And the driver's like, get off the bus. He's not going to do anything to you. And I was like, I, you know, and he's like, get off the bus. So I kind of, you know, squeezed by this guy I'm like, okay, kids come around, you know, don't get shot. I'll see you in four blocks. And they all go off. But this guy follows me. He's trying to engage me in conversation. Why y'all come here? Y'all need to leave. And I turn around and I just said, Hey, Man, we're just here to let people know that, man, God loves you. There's a place here that loves you. We can help. And he said, man, your God ain't real. Your God ain't real. I said, why would you say that? And he said, look at this. Look at all the pain and suffering here. 
Look at everything going on here. He said, if there was a good God who was real, how could all this happen? And I thought, this is my chance to use all the knowledge I've acquired in seminary now to have a discussion with this kind man. So I said, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the problem of evil. I said, is it possible that, that your belief that all this suffering is bad? I mean, like maybe that's the reality that, you know, that God does want to help, that the reality that you think it should be better, is, is that the reality that it could be better? And I said, let me ask you a question. I just went back to the book. I said, where were you on 9-11? So I was locked up in the pen. And I was like, me too. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's going to kill me. I, I was trying to like squeeze out a tattoo tear. It was like, you know, whatever, Lord, help me not appear so afraid. Um, so we get into this dialogue. And it doesn't go anywhere. And I, I'd love to say he got on the bus and now he's a preacher. He didn't. He, you know, he finally left me alone. I never saw him again. But this concept of evil is very hard to deny. It's very hard to deny globally. But to make it personal, it's a whole different story. Yet that's what Paul has done. Paul is saying our protection, prog- uh, our protection problem is, is, not a, is not global evil. It's not a worldview of evil. He said it's a personal attack from evil. Paul uses the word struggle. Which in the Greek language is this word pale, and here's the interesting thing. The most commonly used word to describe Greco-Roman wrestling or hand-to-hand combat in Greek literature is pale. Paul didn't say we're going to struggle with the concept of evil. He said we're going to struggle as Christians personally with evil. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched Greco-Roman wrestling or, or like real wrestling. Not WWF stuff, but real wrestling. Last night... I watched for the first time in my life. I'm 37 years old. I've never watched wrestling on TV. I did last night. Because, Scott, I don't know if you saw, our Ohio State Buckeyes won the national championship last night in wrestling. They lost the basketball game. So I thought, "Eh, basketball term is no big deal. I'll watch wrestling. So I'm watching wrestling. And it was the most disgusting and disturbing thing that I have ever seen in my life. It was these guys in, in, in not enough clothes. They were literally trying to rip each other's arms and their legs off. I mean, it it was the most painful thing. I think I pulled my groin just watching it. Just why I just thought that's very uncomfortable to watch them do what they're doing to each other. And Paul said, that's what the devil does to us personally. It's not a global fight against evil. It's a personal struggle, hand-to-hand combat. Like he never lets you go. You're getting exhausted trying to figure out how to get Satan's grip off your life so you can move forward spiritually. The Christian's problem with the devil is up close, is personal, and it proves difficult. Difficult, but doable. Difficult, but not impossible to protect ourselves against the attacks of Satan. How? Because Paul delivers for us in verses 13 through 18 a protection process. Paul said, listen, it's God's will that you be strong in the face of spiritual warfare. However, that's really hard. But I can give you a process that can make that happen. And in verses 13 through 18, we see that process developed for us. Paul says, therefore. Therefore, in scripture, always relates to the verses previously before. So Paul is saying you need to be strong. It's hard to be strong. So here's the answer. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. With all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Now, next week, I'll take an entire message on prayer. Today, I want to focus on the protection process that... Paul gives us because the apostle Paul gives us a plan to stand our ground spiritually in the face of anything and everything that we'll deal with in life. Paul said, here's a process that helps you stand your ground spiritually. He uses the word stand four times. This this is the thought to stand against something that's coming. And I'll be very honest with you. I've taught this text. I've memorized it. um, And I always focus on the armor. 
Always. Because, I mean, that's like that's kind of the point, right? The, the armor of God. I've, I've put on sports equipment to show the armor of God. Um, I've, I've shown pictures of Roman soldiers to show the armor of God. I've got fake Roman soldier stuff to show the armor of God. I actually talked to a police officer in our church who's on the SWAT team the Sunday before I left about possibly getting his SWAT stuff to show the armor of God. I've always focused on the armor. And this week as I was preparing my message, God's a Christian, you got to quit doing that because the, the armor's not real. The armor's figurative. There is no helmet. There's no breastplate. There's no belt. There's no shoes. Those are all metaphors. Everyone pictures the army, armor. Everyone can see the outfit. No one knows what it means. No one practices the spiritual reality of the armor. The armor's not real. It's just a picture that Paul used. But the spiritual qualities that Paul gave us, those according to scripture protect us from the devil. So I want to focus not on the armor, but on what the armor represents because it's unbelievable what Paul teaches us. His plan has nothing to do with armor. It has everything to do with the spiritual qualities that we place into our life. And he gives us five of them. He talks kind of about scripture twice. He tacks on prayer at the end. We'll talk about that next week. But what spiritual qualities protect us from the devil? Number one, truth. It doesn't matter that it's a belt. It matters that it's truth. A lot of us have seen the picture of the belt, but we don't know that it stands for truth. And sadly, we don't really know truth. We said two weeks ago that when it comes to spiritual warfare in our head and our heart, we have to cross-examine every spiritual thought against the truth of God's word. The verse that we used to show that was 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and we make it obedience to Christ. We take captive what we're thinking and we speak truth into it. And that helps us get through spiritual warfare. And it hit me this week. One of the reasons we're not protected very well is because we don't know truth. I was reading this week to some random column in some random paper. And it was talking about how babies learn to speak. And as I read it, it was like the light bulb came on. And it said, children learn to speak by listening, not by speaking. Children learn to speak by listening, not by speaking. Speaking only comes after they've heard something enough times to be comfortable with repeating it and repeating it correctly. My dad, who was in education for more than 35 years as a teacher and then a principal and then an athletic director, always had this massive heart for the special education classes at our school. And he always tried to push me when he knew I wanted to be a teacher and a coach. He always pushed me to get my special education certificate because he believed there was there was a special ministry in ministering to kids in special education classes. And when I was going to school back in the early 90s, most of that was a lot of speech and hearing impairment. And I remember asking my dad, who was close to all these kids in special education at our school, asking my dad about the, the kids who couldn't hear well, why they couldn't speak well. And I said, there's something wrong with their with the way they hear and the way they speak. And he said, no, most of them, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the way they speak. But because they can't hear properly, they can't speak properly. They've never heard how things are supposed to sound, so they do their very best. But because they, because they haven't heard, they can't speak clearly. And it hit me, oh my Lord, the reason why none of us are able to speak truth into spiritual warfare is because we don't hear it enough. We haven't learned the truth of God's word enough to be comfortable speaking the truth of God's word when we need it. For those of you who are bilingual and know another language, you know the best way, really the only way to become truly fluent in another language is to immerse yourself in a culture where you can hear it every day and speak it. You can't just pick up a book and learn a new language. You have to hear the way it sounds. And most of us have never heard the truth of God's word, even though we have it and we can hear it every day and we can show up at church and learn it. Most of us are wondering, how come I can't speak truth to the devil because you don't spend enough time hearing the truth and if you don't hear it you can't speak it and a lot of us are hearing impaired spiritually and it doesn't matter if this is a belt or a wristwatch the problem is we don't know the truth 
So Satan hits us and it's like, I don't know. When's the last time you read your Bible? When's the last time you spent some time learning the truth? When's the last time you got in a small group so you could not only read the Bible but discuss the truth and hear it used in dialogue with people? See, unless you're willing to learn to hear the truth, you'll never be able to speak the truth and to combat what Satan is putting in your head. So truth is a big deal. I don't care what part of the armor it is. Spiritually, truth is a big deal, as is number two, righteousness. Doesn't matter that it's a breastplate. Doesn't matter what physical organs the breastplate protects. I've taught all this from a physical standpoint. Paul's teaching us something spiritually. Paul is saying that when we pursue a righteous life in accordance with Scripture, that it takes you in the exact opposite direction that Satan wants you to go. He actually does something ingenious here. Paul said, I could tell you a hundred things to run from, and you can memorize a hundred things. Or I could teach you one thing to run towards, and it eliminates all of them. So you only have to learn one thing. Run towards righteousness. It puts everything else in the rearview mirror. You don't have to know what to run away from. Just know what to run to. He actually told his young apprentice, Timothy, run to righteousness in 2 Timothy 2, 22 through 26. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that they'll grant, that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they'll come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. Here's a sod again. The devil's trying to trap. Master tracker, master trapper. Paul said, if you run towards righteousness, you won't have to worry about anything. Righteousness most simply defined is right living in accordance with God's word. That's what righteousness is. Just do what the Bible tells you to do. That's what righteousness is. So every time I come across something in scripture that I'm not doing, and it's almost daily, I think I need to do that. Because if I will run towards that, I will run away from something else. If you pursue love, you'll run away from hate. If you pursue generosity, you'll run away from greed. If you pursue peace, you'll distance yourself from relational conflict. If you pursue humility, you'll leave pride behind. Do you see how that works? Run towards righteousness. And everything else just kind of fades in the background. Learn one thing. An attempt to do what the Bible tells you to do. And then there's number three. This, this is a, this is a weird thing. Readiness. Readiness. Paul refers to it as shoes. Have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I've struggled with this for years. What does readiness means? And here's what I have learned as I've studied this over the last year or two. This thought of being ready means that Christians should be ready for anything that attempts to steal their inner peace and they have to recognize it as spiritual warfare. Now, let me ask you a question. For those of you who have been in church a little while, you should know this answer. If you've not grown up in church, you're going to see whether people who have grown up in church ever listen. So this will be a fun exercise for everyone involved. Scripture says that Jesus is the prince of... So if you have Jesus, you have peace. Like that, that's... That's a black and white fact, right? If Jesus is the Prince of Peace, if you have Jesus, you have peace. So if you have Jesus and you're not at peace, that is a feeling from the devil. It's not a reality. Because if you have Jesus, you have peace. So anytime you're not at peace, that's a feeling from the devil. Because if you have Jesus, you have peace. So Paul says you need to get your feet ready... To always understand, if you have Jesus, you have peace. And anytime you're not at peace, you need to process that as spiritual warfare. And man, I was really challenged by this this week. For those of you who, who don't know me well, I grew up in a very small town in southern Ohio. Um, and the culture, like the culture of my life, if I were to define, like give two words that would define the culture of who I was, they, they would be redneck jock. Like that's that's who I... Grew up as, like redneck jock, very small town, southern Ohio, little bit hillbilly. Last night, Danielle and I were having a spirited discussion about the amount of homework our kids get sometimes. And as we were talking through things, it's like, man, I just don't remember getting that much homework. She said, yeah, but you went to like a, a little school, so it probably wasn't great academically. <laughs> and I thought, 
I thought she might be trying to call me stupid, but because I went to like a little school, I, I just don't know that stuff. I, you know, I can't, I can't know if she was trying to offend me or not. I just, I'm a redneck jock. Um, I wore, I think, every day from seventh grade through my senior year of high school, every day, basketball shorts and a t-shirt. Every day for like five years. So when my teachers kicked me out of class, I just go to the gym and play basketball. I'd already be ready to go. So I didn't grow up real culture. 40 minutes from the closest McDonald's. 40 minutes from the closest movie theater. Um, wasn't a real, wasn't a real reader. Uh, it's not a, not a lot of culture in my life. So we're on spring break. And Danielle says there's this movie out that we have to see that I had never seen. She said, it's a classic. You're going to love it. So what is it? She goes, it's called Cinderella. <laughs> I'd never seen Cinderella. I've never read the book, Cinderella. I knew some tidbits about the story. Like, you know, I know, I know she's a Disney princess, right? And she's got a castle. I get all that. But I'd never seen the movie. So we're sitting there watching the movie. And it's fascinating. I mean, like, this is an incredible story. I finally understood why everyone wants to go to that godforsaken place called Disney World and push your kids around in strollers and 90 degree, 100% humidity weather. So anyway, we're watching this. And if you've not seen the movie, maybe you're not cultured like me. So... She loses a shoe, and the prince finds the shoe, and then he has to go find So he's searching all over the kingdom to find this princess. You all are like, we know the story. I did not know the story. So like as he finally goes to Cinderella's house, right? Like I am so nervous because she's locked in the attic, and her stepmother, who's so mean, doesn't want her to see him. The, like the captain of the guards made a deal with the wicked stepmother. I mean, it was horrible. So I'm like sweating bullets. And they're like downstairs and Cinderella's stuck in the attic. And like my heart is beating and I'm like, she's upstairs. Like I want to act like my black friends in the movie theater. I just want to yell at the screen like, she's up right there. Help her. So anyway, they open the window. They hear her singing. And the prince comes in and Cinderella sits down. And he puts his slipper on. And it fits. And like my heart was so happy. Like I was just so happy for her. And for the prince, it was just awesome, right? And at that moment, I think back to feet fitted with readiness. And I thought, man, Jesus' peace shoes don't fit me very often. Like when Jesus brings around a shoe called inner peace, I don't have that very often. Like I'm not the match to that shoe. And it was like the Lord said, Christian, you're letting spiritual warfare rob you of what Jesus should be in your life, inner peace. Isaiah 26.3 says it this way, you'll keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. See, as we look at what Satan wants to do, Satan wants to, to keep us, he wants to keep us from learning about God. And then if we learn about God, he wants to keep us from living for God. And then if we live for God, he wants to keep us from trusting in God. Either way, he wins. Because we don't feel close to our God and we don't feel the peace that God offers. So readiness is a big deal. And then Paul says there's faith. And this word he uses for faith is awesome. Because it gives me permission to be the type of Christian I need to be from time to time. You know, Roman soldiers used two kinds of shields. One was called a grappling shield. It fit on their forearm. And it kind of looked like a trash can lid. And they would go into battle with it and... Like in hand-to-hand combat, they would use the shield. But then the Roman soldier also had this, what was called a battle line shield. It's three feet tall by two feet wide. And they would never take it onto the battlefield with them. They would hide behind it when the battle was raging so hard that it wasn't safe to go out. When Paul said use the shield of faith, he talked about the big one. Paul said there are going to be times in your Christian life that you just have to duck down behind your faith. And just trust God. There are going to be times in your Christian life where you don't have an answer. There are going to be times in your Christian life where it's not safe for you to keep moving in the direction you're moving. There are going to be times in your Christian life where the only answer is to duck down behind the shield and say, Okay, God, until the storm is over, I just have to trust you. Blindly, hoping the shield will hold up, I just just have to trust you. I found out last night one of the couples who helped us start our church has since gone to help another pastor start a church they have a little girl who's getting ready to turn one that they just found out has cancer and it started as stage two it's advanced to stage three just found out last night there are no spiritual answers for that scenario 
When you tithe faithfully and your finances tank, there are no spiritual answers for that scenario. When you try to be a faithful husband and wife and your spouse walks out on you, there are no answers for that spiritual solution. I have found that many times in life when I would like to have all the answers, I'm left with two options. Believe there are no answers or sit down behind the shield of faith and say, God, I don't get it, but I'm going to trust you. I have no other options. And Paul says sometimes your only protection against what Satan is doing in the world and in your life is to sit down and do nothing and say, God, I guess I won't figure this out till one day I get to ask you, but I'm just going to have to trust you. That's not, that's not a place we like to go often because that's not how we're built. We're built to understand things and explain things. But Paul says sometimes Christians have to know when it's time to take cover. Christians have to know when it's time to wait out an attack. Christians have to know when there are no more answers to that question and, and we just trust God and wait. And then Paul says, lastly, there is salvation. Your first and greatest protection against the evil in the world, against the spiritual deadness in your life is salvation. Is to have an experience with God where you say, God, I realize I'm apart from you. I'm distant from you. I want to be close to you. I need you to forgive me. The spiritual term for this is the term born again. And I love to ask people this question. When were you born again? When were you born again? Because there are a lot of religious people who have been around religion, been around God their entire life, but they've not been born again. And Satan's greatest ploy against them is you've gone to church your entire life. Who cares that you don't know when you were born again? Who cares if you haven't had a moment of salvation? Surely you love Jesus. You've gone to church all your life. Pastor Ryan told me in our story series that hundreds of people have been going through in our church. That we've had dozens of people who when they write their story and at the moment in their story when they talk about their salvation when they become a Christian, they don't have that. They don't, they don't know when they became a Christian. They don't have a time when they were born again. They're like Nicodemus in John chapter 3 who not only practiced religion but was a teacher of religion and he came to Jesus to talk to him about eternal life and he he was a religious man who'd never experienced salvation and Jesus said in John 3 3 Nicodemus very truly I tell you no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again you see Satan's most vicious attacks in your life will come upon a moment of salvation and they'll try to delay it delay it delay it delay it think it's not necessary think maybe it's already happened but this would be like you not having a birth certificate. This would be like somebody saying, hey, when, what's your birthday? You say, you know, I've just kind of always been alive. I just, I, you know, I don't know. Celebrate on Christmas. I mean, this, this, I, there are a lot of people, religious people I talk to. I say, when did you become a Christian? I've, all, I've, always, be, I've always been a Christian. So wait, wait a minute, hang on. That's not what Jesus said. When were you born again? When did you experience salvation? I've talked to a lot of people who say, I don't understand what you mean by that. Say, when did you decide to ask Jesus to become your best friend? When did you decide that you were going to now live life to follow God? When did you decide to ask Jesus to forgive you of everything? You've had? When did you become a Christian? I can't tell you how many people have said, I've never done that. And I say, Let, let's do that right now then. You see, the helmet of salvation, the most critical spiritual step for a person is salvation. And what's interesting is if Satan can't stop that attack, the very next step that comes after salvation, when you look at the process of spiritual development, and what Satan wants to do is just stop you where you are. If you're not a Christian, he never wants you to become a Christian. If you are a Christian, he wants you to never grow in your faith. If you're growing in your faith a little bit, he wants to keep it really, really slow. Satan just wants to stop you where you are so you can move on to the next person. But there are a lot of people who... After they're born again, the very next thing they're supposed to do is to get baptized. They're supposed to proclaim their faith publicly through baptism. To say, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, I've decided to follow Jesus. And through the water, you know, I believe symbolically, I believe my sins have been washed away. I believe I've died to who I used to be. I believe that I'm raised a brand new person. They're supposed to be baptized. And if Satan can't keep you from becoming a Christian, his secondary attack will be to keep you from getting baptized. Because he knows he can stunt your growth forever. If he can keep you from publicly saying, I've decided to follow Jesus. And as we look at our church and as we move into the Easter season, I hope you learn a lot through everything that's going on in this series. 
But there are some people in our church, maybe one, maybe ten, maybe twenty, who are still battling the very first wave of attack spiritually, who they've been born again, but they've never been baptized. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Will you get past the first spiritual attack? Because the Civil War started when Fort Sumter in South Carolina was attacked, but they got past that, and eventually the war ended. And Pearl Harbor, the United States was dragged into World War II when Pearl Harbor was attacked, but they got past the first attack. And there are some of you in here today, you're still fighting your very first spiritual battle because you've not decided to get baptized yet. I'm going to ask our worship team and our choir to come. And as they come, I want you to fill in the last blank on your sermon notes. And I want to kind of turn our focus from global spiritual warfare to personal spiritual warfare. And specifically those of you who have not taken this step of baptism yet. Your first victory over spiritual warfare as a Christian is New Testament baptism after salvation. Like your very first heavyweight bout. Like your first chance to go 1-0 and against Satan. Is to be baptized. It's the first thing he doesn't want you to do. It's the first thing that you can overcome. And at our church since we began. We've had 131 people. That have been baptized. A large majority of those were people. Who at some time in their young life. Were dedicated. They were baptized. Their mom and dad decided. They wanted them to grow up in faith. But they had never after they had been born again. Said I need to be baptized for me. I need to take this step. And as you contemplate that, if you're, if you're the one in here that today's message is for, or if you're among the few or the many that this message is for, as you watch the new life that baptism represents shown on our screen from three years of doing church, and as our choir and our ministry team sings, would you contemplate if you've not gone 1-0 yet? If you're not 1-0, you're 0-0. Is your very first victory you can possibly attain is to publicly step forward in baptism. Would you consider doing that at our church during our Easter baptisms next Sunday morning? Would you just let your heart be open to that as our team sings this song?
And man, we celebrate what God has done. But God's not done. Because we're not standing still, we're moving forward. And I wish I could lay out a hundred spiritual battles that were occurring right now in the lives of people in our church. But I can't. There's probably thousands. But we can pinpoint one. That spiritual battle to step forward and be baptized is raging in the hearts of some of the people in this room today. And it's time. It's time for you to go one and oh. It's time for you to start your spiritual heavyweight career. It's time for you to face your first fight. It's time for you to step forward. So if you're here today and you've not yet taken this step, I'm going to ask you to reach into your bulletin. There's a little card that says, I've decided. And next Sunday morning after church, we're having our next round of baptisms. And it's time for some people in our church who've been waiting and 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 waiting. And waiting. It's time to step into the ring and do some spiritual battle. And watch what happens as you begin to grow. God's doing some amazing things in our congregation and in the lives of people in our congregation. Which means that some of us have to step up to move forward. And if it's your turn, then man, I'm so excited next week to share your story with people in our church. And to experience your baptism with you. Would you pray with me?